Hey guys, it's Liz Kelly. We have a new podcast launching this week exclusively on Spotify with Chris Ryan and Chuck Klosterman called Music Exists. Here's the trailer. Hello, this is Chris Ryan. I'm an editor at TheRinger.com. Hello, this is Chuck Klosterman. I'm a friend of Chris Ryan and The Ringer. And this is Music Exists, a podcast where we talk about how we think about music. Yeah, this is not a podcast where we tell you what music to listen to or we necessarily comment on what's happening in the culture right now or what you should be listening to tomorrow before your friends do. This is a podcast about thinking about music even when it's not playing. Yeah, how does music shape the world you see around you, the world you feel around you? How does it make you feel about yourself? Yeah, particularly if the music that makes you feel things about yourself is Steely Dan or Black Sabbath. Or Radiohead. Yeah, that happens. That comes up a lot. Music Exists, a podcast about Radiohead. (laughs) (laughs) Available exclusively on Spotify. NFL show. I'm Robert Mays. We have a very fun show for you today. Chiefs right tackle Mitchell Schwartz will be joining us a little bit later to chat about what it's like to actually win a Super Bowl, among a bunch of other stuff, including playing with Patrick Mahomes, his all-time hot streak for an offensive lineman in the playoffs, which I clearly love talking about. Before we get to any of that, though, we're recording this on February 13th. We are firmly in the pre-combine football wilderness, so I thought it would be fun to ask you guys what your biggest questions were about this offseason. And to help me answer those is one Danny Heifetz. Mr. Heifetz, how you doing, buddy? I am fantastic, Maze. How are you doing today? I'm 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 great. It's it's great to have you here. Kevin is on vacation, and they're like, who do you want to do the show with next week? And I was like, you know what? Danny Heifetz had a big year. I would love to talk some football with Danny Heifetz here as we kind of start wading into the offseason. This is our inaugural pod. We've never done We've it before. We've never done a podcast together before. This is great. You know what? I feel like it's going to go swimmingly. I, I have no concerns. It's very natural. I mean, you should have some concerns, but I appreciate the confidence. Uh, we're going to be just fine. Okay. I want to thank everyone who sent in questions. As always, there are some really fun ones in here, but we are going to start this conversation the same way any conversation about the offseason should start, and that is with the QB carousel. So let's kick it off. Adam Bergman asks... What would the most fun landing spots be for all the high-profile free agent quarterbacks that could conceivably have the cap space to go out and get them? So let's lay this out very quickly. We talked about this before the show. There are some ground rules here. All of these guys cannot go to their teams they're on right now or were on last season because that is inherently not fun. You you can't put (laughs) Brady back on the Patriots. Like, that sucks. Also, for our purposes here, We're making Cam Newton and Andy Dalton free agents, even though you technically have to trade for them, but they're involved in every single one of these conversations. So those are the stipulations. Let us start with one Thomas Brady. What would the most fun landing spot be for Tom Brady? I mean, it's the Colts, and I don't really want to hear other other options. I completely disagree with you. Why? Why? Because I am a huge fan. Look, storytelling needs to come full circle, and Tom Brady ending on the Colts would just be unbelievable, especially if they meet in the AFC Championship again. And then Peyton Manning is like watching in the stands and he's watching Tom Brady lead the Colts against the Patriots. Like what is what for the AFC Championship game? What is a better scenario you're going to paint me than that? John Gruden and Tom Brady. Are you kidding me? You're wrong. Oh my God. 
I would absolutely love to watch Tom Brady play for John Gruden and just to see him be completely disillusioned by the man within like two weeks. I It would be so entertaining. Well, now I'm just going to... Ju- Do you want me to just jump to where I had, who I had in Vegas under Gruden? Sure. I had Cam Newton in Vegas because they're going to Vegas and Cam Newton, like the outfits he already does and like what he does at Instagram. And it's like Cam Newton's Instagram stories are already unbelievably entertaining when he's just like on a field in like the middle of nowhere, Charlotte, North Carolina. And like if he's like walking through casinos in Vegas, like Instagram living, like that alone is amazing. And then there's also Cam Newton on the field with John Gruden. You're bringing a very different element to this show because there is a gap in our ages, and you've already <laughs> mentioned you've mentioned Instagram both before the show started and right now. It's the most times Instagram stories has been mentioned on this podcast ever. So How do I'm you really watch enjoying football? it. Do you watch football on, I, on the television sets or whatever they're called? I, I, I do. I still have TV sets. So my cam destination is the Patriots. You said fun. You wanted fun things. Bill Belichick finally getting a quarterback that he can run with. If Cam is healthy and Cam can actually move around, I would absolutely love watching Bill Belichick get to construct an offense around a running quarterback. It's what he has always dreamed of. It would finally come to fruition. No, I I, I do like that. I do love the idea of Cam with Belichick. But I like the idea of Cam with Gruden in Las Vegas more, especially because that way we could still get Cam, I don't know, Cam in Vegas to me is just, that's, that's I the can, dream to me. I think you're probably right. He's also much closer to his hat maker, which is nice. <laughs> his hat maker lives in California. Okay, Drew Brees. Wait, how much do those things run for? Do you think you could hook me up? Oh, I don't know. I, I, I am a man that, I walk, I, there's a Gurren Brothers next to my house, like that, the hat place. And I walked in one time, I was like, you know what? Maybe I want to just see if I can pull off a hat. Because I wore a cowboy hat at a wedding earlier this year. And I walked in to buy one. And I was like, can I do this? And the answer was no. I just, I can't pull it off. I, am, I do not have hat energy. All right. <laughs> not, not yet. Not yet. No, not yet. Soon. Soon. All right. Drew Brees. Chargers. I'm a sucker for full circle, man. I'm a, I'm a sucker for it. That's such a lack of imagination. Wow. Why? Because storytelling is supposed to come full circle. You've seen him in the uniform before? That's why he's going there? Well, no, because I this one more than any other one, I, I don't think Breeze, I mean, Breeze himself is like, I don't want to play anywhere, anywhere other than the Saints. I don't think Breeze would be as good as anywhere other than the Saints. I don't think that ne- anywhere else is necessarily like a great destination for him. I'm sure, but enlighten me. Where would you rather see him? I would love to watch Drew Breeze throw the ball to Mike Evans and Chris Godwin. Why? Because he can't get the ball 40 yards downfield? You want to turn Mike Evans into a, a nice That's slant That's the receiver? problem. That's the problem, is that Drew, Drew, Drew Brees is no longer fits the Bruce Arians offense necessarily. I'll be honest. Gets, I, Bruce Arians, I think the average depth of target of that offense is like 10 yards, and I think Brees I is think it's like higher than that. last with like four, five. Stylistically, they'd have to switch things up a bit, but I would just love to watch him throw the ball to those two guys. You just a lot more short, you know, a lot more short stuff with Chris Godwin getting the ball out of his hands. Again, they'd have to be there's some tweaks, but just Drew Brees throwing to those two guys would be fun to me. Well, you could also watch it for a long time because the ball will just hang in the air, so you'll have plenty of time to watch it. How dare you? How dare you? It would be the exact opposite. Those guys would be so so happy that there was somebody that could actually throw them the ball and not throw the ball to the other team. Okay, my king, Philip Rivers. What you got? We're gonna. I put him in Carolina because I think Rivers is the most boring guy in this list, other than Andy Dalton. And I put him in the most boring place. What the fuck is wrong with you? You think Philip Rivers is boring? Yeah. So does most people who listen to this. I'm betting. I don't know why you're you're obsessed with Philip Rivers. Rivers Is so incredibly not boring. I literally I wrote about Philip Rivers this week, and I said you can say a lot of things about Philip Rivers. 
You can't say he's boring. No, that was the lead no, of my I notes. I know. I just, I just disagree. No, you made very valid oh points, and I appreciate God. your passion. Philip Rivers is so not boring. But that being said, <laughs> I'm, I am putting him somewhere for boring reasons. I'm putting him on the Colts <laughs> just because I think it makes sense. I, I honestly think there's a chance it happens. His offensive coordinator from their offensive coordinator was his quarterbacks coach for two years. And it's with the organization for five. Frank Reich was his offensive coordinator. I think their offensive line really gives him a chance to make the most out of his last couple of years. They are not an offense that throws the ball downfield a ton. They gets the ball out quick. That would really help him. I just think from a football sense, it makes sense. From a football standpoint, it makes sense. And I also just think he fits with what they'd want to do. That could, that's his whole career. From a football standpoint, it makes sense. Philip Rivers is a vastly underrated player who has had a illustrious Here's why. Career, I, I went through every single it. time the Chargers blew a lead in the fourth quarter in the Philip Rivers era. And I got I to gotta tell you something. I came away thinking, um, not a Hall of Famer. Just going to be honest with you. Philip Rivers is much, much better at playing quarterback than Eli Manning. Okay, let's continue. <laughs> well. Dak Prescott. Uh, I put him in Tampa Bay for everything you just said about the Bucs. I, 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 I'm with it. I think that's fine. I think that's fun. I, 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 it was hard to pick one for him because I think he's a good quarterback and wherever he went, it would be enjoyable. I get sort of a lack of imagination. I put him in Carolina because I think the stuff he could do as a runner with Christian McCaffrey is kind of the stuff we saw with Cam when Cam was still moving around. So he was tough for me. I also think he throws a gorgeous deep ball and Curtis Samuel needs someone that can throw him the ball now after what he had to deal with last year with dead arm Cam and way too many weeks of Kyle Allen. Yeah, and Dak, I mean, Dak made such huge strides this year. I mean, he was second in the league in sacks in 2018, and now we're at this weird point where we're kind of realizing that sacks are partially on the offensive line, but also partially on the quarterback, especially with the guys who get sacked a lot, like Deshaun Watson and Dak. And then this year, he gets sacked less than half the amount, like his pocket presence. He went from fumbling a lot to fumbling very, very little, and it was, I mean, I think he cut his sack rate by a, by a third. And his pocket presence really the eye test really backed all those numbers up. He just was in control. I think he's a really good quarterback. I, I feel like he's worth paying. You know, we'll talk about this on this show a hundred times between now and March about what the Cowboys should and shouldn't do with Dak Prescott. But I think if you dropped him into pretty much any offense, it would be fun. But I think him with DJ Moore, Curtis Samuel, Christian McCaffrey with Joe Brady running the offense, sign me up. I think that'd be really fun. Okay. Jameis Winston. This was tough for me because the most fun team Jameis Winston can be on is the Bucks. So, and we can't no, do that. I, I so disagree. I had a hard time. I think the most fun thing for Jameis to do is go to the Patriots. I want to see Bill Belichick manage Jameis Winston. I want to see him have to deal with it. That's a pretty good one. I said I, the can Saints you imagine because, Bill and like the, the memes of Jameis and Bill on the sideline and Josh McDaniel? I can't even imagine what that would, Bill that would be. It like. would be the only thing that could make Bill Belichick retire before the age of 75, <laughs> is having to coach Jameis Winston. I said the Saints just because I'd like to see him throw the ball to Michael Thomas 26 times a game. Yeah, under any circumstances, he would just throw it to him on every single play, and I'd be fine with it. I just need to see Bill Belichick try to figure out how to handle James Winston. I think that one's fine. All right, these are less fun just inherently. Uh, let's go with Ryan Tannehill. Oh, I gave him to the Bears. What do you what, think of what that? What is fun about that? Uh, he's better than Mitchell Trubisky, and I'd like to see the Bears have a better quarterback than Mitchell Trubisky. So that's why I put Andy Dalton on the Bears, because no matter what I happens— thought you, All right, so Maze, we need to talk about self-care for a moment. Hey, no matter <laughs> what happens with the Andy Dalton thing, it's going to be interesting because I've said that they should do this for like, just not for me, for me on a personal level, because I've said they should do this for like three months and everyone was like, are you crazy? And now 
everyone's come around and be like, you know what? The Bears should trade for Andy Dalton. So if it goes wrong, then everyone can just dunk on me for the entire season, and that's fine. If it goes well, then they should let me take over the franchise. So either one of those outcomes, I think, is at least worth paying attention to. So that's why I want it. I'm stuck. So here's the thing. They say the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. And I am indifferent to Andy Dalton. Like, no disrespect to the man. He's wonderful. But like... Honestly, so am I. And that's exactly what I want for the Bears. <laughs> I want an <laughs> indifferent quarterback. That's, that would be such an improvement, is having just a guy who's a guy. All I want is average. Because I, I just look at the Bears and it's like they're the person in the relationship and it's like they can't admit this isn't working, but everyone around them knows it's not working. Oh, it's terrible. And they don't it's have the strength. Absolutely like, terrible. You just want to save them from themselves and they just won't let you. I want you to, to raise your standards. You don't deserve just a guy. You deserve a great guy. You know what I mean, Maze? I want you to have a great guy. I want a guy for a season and that's enough. Oh, man. Jeez. Let's move on. Here we go. Brandon Hilliard asks... What is your dream free agent team pairing? I really enjoy this one. So what, what did you start with? Well, I have a nerdy offensive line one for you we can do really quick and then oh, I have a real man. one. Okay. So let's just get this off the bat. Kevin's just not really, here. It's really like, catering to me. Substitute teacher. Jack Conklin to the Miami Dolphins so that when Tua is a lefty goes to the Dolphins, Jack Conklin is a right tackle protecting Tua's blind side. That's not a bad idea. I, I think Jack Conklin is fine. I think that he... <laughs> I mean, I think he's fine. I I don't think he's any great shakes. I think that he was vastly overrated as a rookie. I think that he is a a competent left tackle, a right tackle. The problem is competent offensive linemen get paid a lot of money in free agency. If you look at the Jawan James contract and you pretty much assume that that Jack Conklin is going to match that contract or beat it, that's frightening. That, that, That is really why it's dicey to dive into free agency to get players. Wow, I just I just feel like I just got dunked on. You just like Jack Conklin is fine. Jack Conklin is fine. There are, I like some of the interior offensive linemen in this class. I think that (laughs) if you want to give any of the guards to some of these teams, I think the Bills, the Bills have a shocking amount of money to spend in free agency. They don't have a single player outside of their center who makes more than $11 million. If you want to give them a guy like Joe Thune, somebody like that to really boost the interior of their offensive line, I like that a lot. But in terms of Bills players, my favorite one, was Chris Harris going to the Bills. The cornerback from the Broncos? Yes, yes. Just think about that secondary. You'd have Chris Harris in the slot in nickel with Levi Wallace and Tredavious White on the outside and Micah Hyde and Jordan Poyer in the back end. That's uh, that's, awesome. That's a really good one. That's awesome. That's a really good one. And he's the type of guy where I'm not sure how much he's going to get. He's on the wrong side of 30. But I feel like if you're a team like the Bills, it's really just trying to take the final step. This is a perfect way to, one, stave off some regression on defense, and two, just drop in a fantastic player into a position of need for you. They do not have a nickel cornerback that they're going to necessarily ride with right now, and I just think he would be fantastic for them. And what we've seen is like teams stacking strength on strength. Like The Niners exactly. obviously added Bosa and um, D4 this offseason. The Ravens added Earl Thomas, and they traded for Marcus Peters. Like Strength on strength. Like, you know, oh, it's the secondary, it's a pass rush, whatever works. It's Actually, it's just make sure your strengths are elite. Yeah, that's my favorite one. I've got a couple more, but we, we got to move on. So, um, is that, do you have any others? Oh, I, well, I was, I actually, Yannick Ngakwe to Washington, and then they could add Chase Young, Yannick Ngakwe, and their, de- and their defensive line would have those two plus Montez Sweat, uh, Darren Payne, Ryan Kerrigan, and Jonathan Allen, and that would be the best defensive line in the league, and they would be coached by Ron Rivera. 
I, I, we're going to get to Washington and Ryan Kerrigan a little bit later. He, he actually is an answer for another one of the questions I have. The, the other one I had here, just a couple more quickly, I had Matthew Judon going to the Titans because their, their pressure packages are really cool. I know they don't have DMPs anymore, but they're, I like what they do on third down, and he's such a movable piece, and they play Drill Casey outside a lot in certain situations, so you can move Judon inside where he's pretty good. So I, I like a lot of that. And then Corey Littleton going to the Chiefs. They desperately, I mean, they just won the Super Bowl, so I guess not desperately, but they could seriously use uh, some athleticism in the middle of their You're defense. recommending I'm, a Super Bowl champion spend cash money at inside linebacker on Corey Littleton? Uh, listen, buddy, they sent a ton of money on inside linebacker Anthony Hitchens a little while ago. It is not working out for them. I don't think they have the money to do it. They only have about $14 million in cap space, but this is a dream pairing here, and that would be a dream pairing in that defense. I... I don't dream of Corey Littleton, but that's why you're Corey that's Littleton's why you're the a best. great player, man. All right, one more free agent question here. Penn Ross asks, who are some of the free agents sitting under the radar that you think could have a sizable impact next season? I already mentioned Joe Thune, who I don't think is going to be back with the Patriots just because of money. They usually re-sign their offensive linemen a little bit earlier than that. Who are a couple of those guys for you? Okay, Yannick Ngakwe, the defensive end for the Jacksonville Jaguars, I think is fantastic. And I think you think he's over- under the radar. He's got like 40 sacks in four years. Not to you, but to the general public. Absolutely. This is a guy who's one is playing for the Jacksonville Jaguars. And then secondly, he's also not having that great numbers last year because that team, it's like the perfect recipe if you want, like guys who are in a bad situation that deteriorated, like the the culture in that building with Coughlin and Doug Marone and everything was just such a disaster last year that they weren't pr- producing. But he is, as an individual, clearly one of the best defensive ends in the league, and he isn't getting sacks. So I, I don't think most people know who Yannick Ngakwe is. But he, I think by the end of next year, could be one of the top six or seven defensive ends in football, maybe a household name if he ends up in the right situation. Yannick Ngakwe is going to get a $20 million a year contract in a month. There is nothing under the radar about Yannick Ngakwe. I appreciate you trying, though. The man has 37 and a half sacks in four seasons, and he has 14 forced fumbles in four years. Did you know that off the... Wow. You just know that off the top. Fumble, forced fumbles? I did not know that off the top. I'm <laughs> looking at his pro football reference page right now. Oh, okay. All right. My guy is actually under the radar because he is somebody that was a secondary player. He's a backup for la- before last season or two seasons ago. He came in when uh, Andrew Sandejo got hurt and has played fantastic for the Vikings. And that is Anthony Harris. Oh, yeah. All right. That's a good one. I have him too. Yes. Anthony Harris is a legitimately excellent safety. He's a fantastic middle of the field player. I believe he was up near the league lead in interceptions this year. I mean, just the exact type of modern safety that you want. The team that I had in mind for him, I know we didn't have to do it with this, but the Raiders make sense to me because Paul Gunther it plays that same uh, system that Mike Zimmer did. He coached under Zimmer, took over for him in Cincinnati, and I just think you could plug Anthony Harris right in there, and he could be really good for a Raiders defense that really needs some help on the back end. So I have a question for you. The sure. If you look at pro football focus grading, which I think is most effective for a position like safety uh, because it's so difficult to gauge that from just the, guy, the casual fan. Uh, in the top graded safeties in pro football focus, you've got Justin Simmons in the Denver. So that's Vic Fangio's defense. And then you've got Anthony Harris and Harrison Smith in Minnesota. And then also, depending on how many snaps you count, you can also look at certain bear safeties. So how much of safety play is about the defensive coordinator in the system? And when you take a guy like Anthony Harris out of Minnesota, how effective is he still going to be? 
I think it's hard to project that with any guy who who has a somewhat limited track record and he only has two like a year and a half as a starter. It's a risk if you want to give him top of the market money for a safety. But I also just think that playmaking talent is translatable and he absolutely has it. I mean, the guy is just around the ball all of the time. He had 11 passes defense this year. He's a fantastic player. I think he's going to be okay wherever he goes, but I think you do need to find a role that's going to probably use him as just a back end safety, middle of the field, center field type guy. And I think if you have someone that's going to do that, he's going to be really good. Okay. Let's move on. It's, I love this question. It's me, Reagan asks, if you could pull your favorite retired Hall of Very Good player in his prime, and put them on any team, who would it be? He uses Peanut Tillman as an example, which is a perfect example. That's how you get your question answered. Make a reference to Peanut Tillman. It's so true. It's so true. But I love Hall of Very Good. Just the guys you had an affinity for back in the day when you were watching football when you were younger. Peanut Tillman is very much in that wheelhouse for me. So who is this for you? You're probably going to have to pick someone from the last like three years because you weren't alive prior to 2000. I was born in 2009, so this was very difficult for me. I, I... just, I was trying to remember like back in the day, Patrick Wills, but no, uh, I got Andre Johnson, put him on the 49ers. I think Andre Johnson was just unbelievable. Oh my God, that's fantastic. I'm jealous of that one. He's just so good. And he was kind I of, I honestly over- think Andre Johnson might be too good for this. He's not going to make the hall of fame. So I think, I think Andre Johnson is not in the spirit of the question. Okay. How about this? Adelius Thomas, the first person wow. I ever remember doing safety and linebacker and like pass rusher and slot corner in the same game. Putting put him, him where? on. Back on the two teams he played for, the Ravens and the Patriots. I put him on either of those two teams again. The Ravens could use him right now, actually. With Matthew Judon likely leaving in free agency, they absolutely could use a guy like that. My favorite one, and it gave me an excuse to go back and watch him on YouTube, which I tweeted about today, is Antoine Winfield going to the Texans. (laughs) Uh, The Texans need to remake their secondary. Antoine Winfield is a dude who transforms whatever defense he is on. I, Nate Tice was giving me shit about this, and he and I completely disagree. He doesn't think that he would be better now than he was back in the day. I don't necessarily think he would be either, but you wouldn't put him outside. He'd be a slot corner 100% of the time, which is a starting position now. He is just a physical force. He, tr- he completely changes the entire attitude and mindset of whatever defense he is playing. He also probably changed the entire attitude and mindset of young Robert Mays because he was a cornerback for the Vikings. How many different Bears quarterbacks did you watch Winfield intercept? Uh, intercept and destroy, because that was one thing he did very well, is he was a great blitzer and would just absolutely annihilate people coming off the edge. So Antoine Winfield going to Houston, a team that desperately needs cornerback help. Uh, that's my favorite one. I have a couple more quick ones. Colin Jenkins. Do you remember Colin Jenkins? Yeah. Uh, Colin fine. Jenkins. I loved him. The Hall of Very Fine Colin Jenkins. Oh, that is so fucking wrong. You're just remembering his days from the Giants when he wasn't <laughs> as good. He was awesome on the Packers. Great interior pass rusher. I would love him on the Cowboys right now if they lose Malik Collins. Uh, this is a selfish one. I don't really care about Leonard Floyd, and I would love Elvis Dumerville or Cliff Averill across from Khalil Mack. Elvis Dumerville, I loved short pass rushers, and Elvis Dumerville was just a 5'10 guy that was just dominating people, which I always was a fan of. And my favorite Elvis Dumerville story is one of my favorite free agency stories, which is that he failed to sign, I don't know if it's contract extension or free agency. It was a free agent deal. Because he couldn't get to a Kinko's. He didn't have a printer. get to a fax machine, yes. That's extremely relatable. It's, it's incredible. And this was not like 20 years ago. This was like five years ago that he needed to get to a Kinko's in order to sign a free agent deal. It's absolutely amazing. If it hasn't happened to you once, it'll happen to you soon. No, it, it happens to me all the time. I, I don't own a printer and there's a FedEx Kinko's two minutes from my house. All right. 
Let's move on. Matt Lane asks, if you had to start a team with two players, which position groups would you pick? So I want to answer this two ways. Let's first start. If you were starting a team with two players, who would you decide? Non-quarterbacks, obviously. I mean, and, and also Aaron Donald is off the table because that's just the clear answer. So no, no cornerbacks or no quarterbacks, no Aaron Donald. Which two players would you start a team with? And then we can get into why. To me, I think this is very easy. It's to me, it's Michael Thomas and Aaron Donald. And if it's not so Aaron, Donald, no Aaron Donald, if it's not Aaron Donald, then I'm kind of I probably pick TJ Watt. But you could convince me a few young defensive ends. Minus Michael Thomas and Khalil Mack. Khalil Mack, that works for me. And I think that we're we're in the same mind frame here. My idea, the thought I have is, I, I've talked to so many people. I did a big story in, during the playoffs about wide receivers over the last you know twenty years, and talking to guys about whether it's Calvin Johnson or Julio or defenses just completely change what they do against them. It, they're in their heads so much when it comes to game planning. And I think Khalil Mack and pass rushers like that are the same way. I want guys that just dictate the game plans. I want dudes who are the first name that are going to be mentioned when teams are sitting down to game plan on Monday. And that's what those types of players are. I think you could honestly, to me, you could argue Julio over Michael Thomas just because I think he does more things. But I think it's a dominant pass rusher and a dominant pass catcher. Those are my two. I think I completely agree with you in that, but within you can't just take players like that. You also have to, within the pool, of, which is a very small pool of players that dictate a game plan, it's also about culture. Like, if we're talking about a fantasy, like, I mean, Craig and I do fantasy football, right? And then it's, or a Madden draft. You can start a Madden franchise with, I just said Madden like I was from New York, but a Madden franchise with like, <laughs> oh, you know, fantasy style. But if it's not a Madden team, like you're talking about an actual football team, these are your two captains. You're talking about picking your offensive and your defensive captain, and you're telling the other 51 players in the team, be like these dudes. Not everyone can do that. So, you know, there are certain players that maybe in the pool of game plan guys that you don't, Michael Thomas and Aaron Donald or uh, Khalil Mack are guys that you, you can tell everyone on the team, yeah, no, follow their lead. And I think that's equally as important as what happens on the field if you're actually trying to build a winning team, especially if you don't have a strong quarterback. So I had a backup duo. And it was George Kittle, who is in the conversation to me along with the receivers, just because he does so many things. What he allows your offense to be just because of the way he can block and catch is just, he's a unique player in the league right now. There's no one quite like him. And then the other guy I had was, who I think is now in this conversation, is Zadarius Smith. What? Because he can line up inside and outside. It's just such a cool piece to have within your defense. He was the best pass rusher in the NFL by the end of the season. But did, in the NFC Championship game, his performance was spotty to be generous. Like, to oh, be generous, it was up and down. They threw the ball eight times. Bob McGinn of The Athletic wrote a scathing review of the Packers' defensive effort in that game. I highly recommend everyone check it out if you can. The Athletic, Bob McGinn, and he wrote, among, among other things, the defensive line was not prepared by the coaching staff, but also just kind of flagging and, and just, I don't know. That's not, I, 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 I just get that one. They ran the ball eight times. He's a, he's a pass rushing dynamo and he was destroying games by the end of the season. Okay. Pope J 88, obviously the best Pope, you know, one of the many popes, but the best Pope. He says last year, the OBJ trade left me shook. What big off season trades could you see coming this year? This is was tough for me. I don't think there are that many clear choices. Did, did anything jump out to you immediately? Uh, yeah, I, I, I just was really sad about the Odell trade from the Giants. It just, it just reminded me about you. that again. <laughs> 
anything else outside of by just nature, being well, sad. By nature of shocking trades, it's like you can't, nothing that we're talking about right now because the issue is that we already, there's already so much being made up. Like, like people, like Tom Brady, the Chargers, there are already so many things that's like speculation that just gets talked through like a game of telephone, but it's like a game of media and it just gets talk, talk, and then eventually it's kind of hard to figure out what is based on reported information and what's not. So I already think we're in this game of speculation, but by nature of like a big trade that I don't necessarily think will be shocking, it's about the Detroit, what Detroit does at the number three pick. No, no matter what happens, it will probably involve that. I don't think that Matthew Stafford would be traded. I think that there's no good argument as to why he would be traded. If they deal him, it's $32.5 million in dead money. I agree. So, but if they're not going to trade him, then they it would be wise to trade out of the pick. And then that team trading up for Tua will then be start the dominoes. That's probably true. I think they should, if they're not going to take a quarterback and they, there's somebody that is in the market for Tua, trading it would make sense. But I don't think it would make any sense for them to trade him. They need to win now. You know, this is a team that is not in a rebuilding mode anymore. They've spent money. They've spent a lot of money in free agency last year. I feel like right now, both Matt Patricia and Bob Quinn are on borrowed time if they don't turn this thing around. And starting over at quarterback, it'd be really hard to convince ownership to do that at this point in their trajectory. Uh, that just was hard for me to imagine. Shaboy Bill Barnwell at ESPN made a really convincing case. He list, laid out five teams that could be the next year's 49ers and turn around. And he mentioned the Lions as one of the strongest candidates because they didn't have Stafford for so much of the year. And they also just had some bad turnover luck that's probably going to come back around even if they don't. And Matt Patricia is probably underrated as a defensive mind at this point. What, however much confidence I have in Kyle Shanahan, I have the exact opposite amount <laughs> I have in, in Matt Patricia. So I don't feel as confident about that as Mr. Barnwell would. I do think that Matthew Stafford was fantastic in that offense, though. And I missed watching him in it after he got hurt. The couple guys that I think, I mean, these aren't necessarily shocking, but it, there's a world where they could get traded. Chris Jones, you know, they did the same thing last year with D Ford. They franchised him. They dealt him. That wouldn't be that surprising. I, I think that's on the table. Kenny Clark. So I think Kenny Clark is an awesome player. He's due seven and a half or seven point nine million this year. The Packers have a lot of cap space next year. An extension is possible, but they've spent so much money on their defensive line. They may want to spread out the resources a little bit. He's twenty four. He's going to get a ton of money somewhere. The one that I think is very much on the table, though, is not Matthew Stafford, but one of his teammates, and that's Darius Slay. He is going to want to reset the cornerback market next year that they probably aren't going to want to pay him that with everything else that they're having to show out. It wouldn't surprise me if he were dealt before the season started. Yeah. I don't know. None of those are like Odell level stuff to me. Though. No, they're just, they're not, but they're, you can kind of see the writing. I'm just looking at like contracts that are coming up, everything else that by definition, they're not that shocking because you can see why it would happen. The other guy who we mentioned earlier, Ryan Kerrigan, if they draft Chase Young, they just drafted Mata Sweat in the yeah, first round. Yeah, the writing might Ryan, be on the wall. Ryan Kerrigan is 32 years old. His contract expires after next season. I mean, if that they did that, it would actually be smart. So it, we don't ascribe that line of thinking to the Redskins very often, but hopefully they've turned over a new leaf there. Kerrigan's like the most shockingly, like if you just look up the most sacks since 2012, it's like Khalil Mack, Aaron Donald. He's been extremely and Ryan Kerrigan. I don't think he's weird. a game-changing player, but he's always just doing stuff. He's a useful player, even at this age. Um, all right. Sebastian Morningstar asks, since this draft class is filled with wide receiver talent, do you see any of the wideouts drafted later on having a better career than the three wideouts expected to go off the board in the first round? He asked which ones that would be. I have not dug into the draft class that much, but I think the first part of the question is very interesting. If you look at the last 10 years, 
the amount of production in the second round is right there with the amount of production in the first round. The list of first-round wide receivers is pretty bleak sometimes when you check out some of the guys taken at the back end. Kenny Britt, Percy Harvin, Jonathan Baldwin, A.J. Jenkins, Kendall Wright, Cordero Patterson, Tavon Austin, Kelvin Benjamin, Philip Dorsett, Rashad Perriman, Kevin White, Jesus Christ, Laquan Treadwell, <laughs> Josh Doxson, Corey Coleman, John Ross, Corey Davis. I think the, the Titans are a fascinating example. You take Corey Davis in the top five, a couple years later, you take A.J. Brown in the second round, and A.J. Brown's just better. He's just flat out better. I think the hit rate in the first and second round has been comparable enough when you could argue that it's kind of smart to wait on wide receiver. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, this is one of the deeper receiver classes, draft classes in like 10, 20 years. So wait, it's, I think receivers ironically might fall even though they're more talented because there's so many of them. The scarcity of it isn't that big of an issue. But I also think sometimes in the draft, a thing people who cover the draft like us can make a mistake of doing is like, it sounds like so like it's mysterious or something, right? And the reality, it's exactly like any other industry. It's just hiring. Drafting is a fancy word for hiring process. And hiring is really hard. And every industry actually has issues of like filling talent in areas of need. And the, the rate is lower than you think. And especially when something like wide receiver where, I mean, you and Kevin talk on this podcast like every other week about how the passing game has completely changed in the last 10 years. The needs and what the skill sets that matter in wide receivers has completely changed in the last 10 years about physicality at the line of scrimmage. You wrote a wonderful thing on releases, like the actual things that matter. It's so hard to gauge considering the differences between the NFL and college game where receivers aren't as physical. They're getting more... Um, they're getting a lot less press at the line of scrimmage. Like, they don't have to run routes as hard. Like, Kyle Shannon said that about Debo Samuel. Like, route running isn't as important as it used to be. Like, this is a mistake I made when I was talking about certain rookie receivers in fantasy this year is I was overvaluing the importance of being polished at the college level. So I think part of the reason that's happening is teams themselves are actually refiguring out what matters when it comes to taking receivers. And it's hard to predict the future. I think it, you need to be less polished at the college level, but I do think that there is a way of thinking about the position that will be helpful. You know, I've, I've told the story before. I, I watched an interview with Terry McLaurin last year during training camp, and he was talking about just the way he thinks about route running and space and everything else. And when he was talking, I was like, oh, he sounds like Keenan Allen. Like, I've had this conversation with Keenan Allen 10 times. Like, I, I, when you talk to really smart people about the position, they think about it in such detailed ways. Kelvin Ridley was the same way when I was talking to him this summer. I think that there's a way to think about it. I think gauging how guys process their body movements and how they're supposed to take advantage of space and leverage and everything else, that to me would be more important than did I see the guy do it in college? Because that to me is really, really crucial when it comes to that position. Devontae Adams is the same way. You talk to Devontae Adams about playing receiver. It's like, oh yeah, there's a reason that you're really, really good at this. Yeah, it's a craft like anything exactly. else. Exactly. It absolutely is. In, in a way that people don't always appreciate because it's a position that so many people attribute height, weight, speed to why guys succeed or fail. And that's just not always the case. All right. Let's get two more in here that are very quick. John Leibowitz asks, if for one game you had to take over play calling duties from Andy Reid, how many points do the Chiefs score? What do you think? Uh, you go first. 75. I think I could do a better job. <laughs> I was not expecting that. I mean, I mean, it's not that hard. I think it's not that hard. I'm kidding. They would, I wouldn't score anything. They would score zero points. Like, I'm, it's, I'm, I'm messing with you. I can't I totally believe you believe disagree. that. I totally disagree. Oh, I didn't think you were serious. I totally disagree, though. I, I, I think I could get to, like, 21. 
You just I, let Mahomes you said take the word over. I, which right there. Wait, 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 Maze. Do you get the Do you get the playbook to look at? You just call the plays, or do you have to draw plays up on your own? Oh, I think you just. It's play calling duties. There's nothing about design in here. So to, to, so be, cl- to, to, cl- to be clear, though, is Patrick Mahomes going to look at the sideline, see me, and be like, "Screw it, I'm doing this," or is he just like he's seeing Andy Reid, but it's actually me, so he's not questioning it. He's just like doing what Andy says. He think, but it's me. Because if that's the case, it's zero. If Patrick Mahomes is like, oh, well, screw this, then it's then they'll win the game. It's that I'm um, giving him the keys to the car. You know, this play calling is a collaborative effort. We hear that all the time. You need to use your assistance and your quarterback. Patrick Will- Patrick Mahomes, I almost called him Patrick Willis. Patrick Mahomes is the guy that wanted that Jet Wasp play, man. You saw the clip of it. He was the one asking for it. He knows what he's doing. He's a very smart quarterback. I would lean are, on Eric the enemy. Ask- are you, if you're going to ask Pat, what do we do on this play? Then yeah, you, maybe you'll win the game. But That's honestly how play calling works a lot of the time, though. If you have a quarterback you trust, you, you're talking in the headset. You're like, what do you like here? What do you like here? Talk to enemy Like, all right, what do you like here? It's third and seven. What's our favorite third and seven play? It's collaborative. I, I think that the pieces are in place where we would still be able to move the ball, even if I was the one saying the play calls at the end. The only problem would be some of their play calls are so long that I might have trouble getting them out. I'm gonna be honest. I I don't think they'd score with me calling plays. And to be to be I you I you know how much I I I care about you. I don't think they'd score any points with you calling the plays either. And that's not an indictment of you. You just have to let Mahomes ride. You just let you got to give him the controls and just let it happen. Yeah, isn't that a thing? Like Ray Aaron Rodgers called the plays in the Matt Flynn game. It's a rumor. Aaron Rodgers called the plays a lot, and the Packers were really good all the time. So, and they won ten games a year. I think it would be okay. All right. Alan Corridor this is our last one. I think this is the perfect note on which to add. Alan Corridor asks, if the 2019 Bears season was a Nicolas Cage movie, what movie would it be? I didn't come up with one for this. I imagine you're the expert on this. I have a few different answers. <laughs> one is face-off, because the entire season made me want to be a completely different person. And the team needs a facelift. Yes. Two, going in 60 seconds, because it felt like my hopes faded away that fast while watching the offense in the first game. Yeah, And three, raising Arizona because it was like watching Matt Nagy try to keep something alive that couldn't care for itself. Those are my three answers. Jeez. It was like all of those. Are you okay? You know what, buddy? I'm really not. We're going to see what happens here over the next month or so. Well, I think but- the Bears are just like Nicolas Cage, like the guy. I don't think it's like a movie. It's just kind of like Nick Cage, you know? It's kind of like, damn, there's so much potential. And it's like, what is what, what choices are they making? Like, where did you even get, like, and then he you're kind of way- worried about him. He had his window, and then he just spent way too much money. He's like Ryan Pace. Yeah. That is all we got. Thank you guys so much for sending in the questions. We sincerely appreciate it. We're going to get to Mitchell Schwartz here in a second. Heifetz, I appreciate you doing this, man. You, you, thank you for pinch hitting. It was great. I had fun. Yeah, this was a delight. Thank you, Mace. Of course, bud. All right. And without further ado, here is my chat with Super Bowl champion Mitchell Schwartz. And now I am absolutely thrilled to welcome Super Bowl champion. It's still weird to say, I'm sure for you. Chiefs right tackle, Mitchell Schwartz. Mitch, how you doing, buddy? I'm good. That's, uh, that's going to be a fun one to have attached to my name, that's for sure. So I want to talk to you about a lot of stuff, but the first thing is just kind of about that process. So I saw you the night of the game. It was right. You came out to talk to us and answer 20 questions about Patrick Mahomes before you left. And then you go back to the locker room. I am so curious, like, what are the 12 hours like after you win a Super Bowl? Like, after you leave the locker room, what do you do? So, 
I thought the weird thing was when we got back to the locker room, like because of all the media obligations, like usually at some point, uh, and even after the AFC championship game, doing the ceremony and all that, like we still went back to the team, like coach talked to us, we broke it down, kind of did our usual thing. And there just like, wasn't that for the Super Bowl, And I was just thinking like, Oh, that's weird. We just won like the biggest game of our lives. And we're not going to like <laughs> see each other together as a team immediately after to celebrate. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting. And then obviously once you get, uh, you know, fully on the bus and you start leaving the uh, stadium, you know, the media takes forever. So, uh, not too much traffic at that point. And then you got the escort to take you out of there. So, uh, it's a good feeling. I mean, being on the bus, it was awesome. Uh, you know, guys playing, we're the champions, you know, singing together, uh, kind of just reliving everything. And, you know, in about as, as good of a mood as you possibly can be, uh, given the circumstances. And then, uh, you know, the team has a, uh, a party set up for you. So, uh, get back to the hotel, um, you know, throw everything in your room and then, uh, meet up with your friends and family and, uh, go down and party. How much sleep did you get that night? I got a decent amount. I got way more than most of my teammates. That's for sure. But I was going to say, how much did Travis get? <laughs> Uh, undecided. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I think so. I know, you know, we had our, our party at the hotel, which was, um, it was Pipple and it was Flo Rida. And that was actually pretty sweet. Uh, you know, that was a lot of fun. So I went down there. Uh, we just got back probably like 1230 ish or one maybe. And so I went down there for a couple hours and around 2.30, maybe three o'clock, decided to call it a night and went upstairs. And then um, you know, my wife stayed down there and, you know, hung out with her friends that were, that were there and, uh, she stayed up a little longer, but some of the other guys, I mean, they split, I think they went to live or whatever, one of those clubs they're at. Um, and yeah, I've, <laughs> there was no curfew that night, so I have no idea what, what time those guys got home, but we had to, uh, check our bags in by 9.30 AM the next morning because we were leaving at noon. So, uh, a lot of late, late bags checked, uh, you know, a few guys <laughs> a little bit late to the bus, uh, and quite catch up. How rowdy is the plane? Like, are people just dead by that point or is it still going on the plane a little bit? A little bit of a combination. You know, some guys, okay. that was their time to kind of catch up, catch up on all the sleep they, they didn't get the night before. <laughs> um, it was cool. They, they came at the back. I mean, I feel like everyone's kind of seen, you know, Kelsey doing the, whatever beer loose thing off the trophy yeah. and uh they brought the, the trophy back we we sit in the, the back of the plane and so um we brought the trophy back to us and said all right it's you guys for two hours until we land and do what you want with it so kind of passing <laughs> around everyone had fun took their photos uh you know like i said i mean i think right after Travis did this thing he was just asleep for the next two hours <laughs> if you i i think if you had the odds of Will Travis Kelsey find a way to drink off the Lombardi Trophy? They wouldn't have been on the board in Vegas. Like they wouldn't have even let you bet on it. He he's like he's like the Leonardo da Vinci of like post Super Bowl celebrating. Was he the MVP of the week, or was there like a secret MVP? No, I think he was because he he does such a good job of like keeping it loose, having fun with it, and then yeah, you know, being the right amount of kind of spirited and, and party animal, and um, you know, it was awesome when we. Uh, Pulled up to the uh, to the airport. You know, we have a police escort to, to go everywhere. So we pulled up to there, and they all start um, kind of playing their sirens and salute to us. And you know, the guys got off their bikes and were clapping for us and everything. And uh, you know, we're on. I'm on the bus with Trav, and he goes, "Oh man, I don't know. That town was for good." <laughs> the whole bus just kind of cracks up dying, and uh, you know, stuff like that, where he's able to kind of get those one-liners in there. Um, obviously, we're on a good mood at that point, but he always kind of knows what to say. 
What was your favorite memory of the week? Like when you think about just the week before and the week after, what do you think is kind of the moment that's going to stick with you? It's weird, but just like going back and watching everything kind of solidifies the fact that like we were there, like yeah. uh, the first few days after it doesn't quite seem real because, you know, for my whole life, I've watched the Super Bowl. I've waited, you know, two weeks to watch it and all the build up and do your thing on that Sunday. and You watch it however you watch it. And then, when you're there, you know, you don't really get that aspect of it. And so you kind of just show up and, you know, the team preps you really well and says it's just another game and there's going to be a few more cameras flashing. But still, I mean, a 62 or 64,000 person stadium, I mean, you don't see the 100 million people that watch it. So, um, you know, being able to watch it after that kind of solidifies it. And there's just kind of moments that uh, I think it's usually the stuff after the game when you're kind of, you know, BSing with your friends and, you know, talking to Pat about the, at Wasp play and stuff like that and uh, kind of cool moments like that where you where you were living it together. How how much of that play did you see in the moment? Were you like, were you facing backwards? Did you see the ball get completed? I mean, just walk me through that. I'm sure you've got a lot on your mind on that play. I can't remember who you were blocking on that play or how it went for you. I wasn't watching you, unfortunately. I, t- I usually am. Yeah, I had the easy job on that one. So I had the tight end chip help, which is always the preferred okay. uh, type of chip help for the tackle. So I was going up against Steve, but I knew the tight end would be there for me originally. Um, you know, you can kind of see I, the tight end does a great job for me. Um, there's a lot of separation between me and D. I kind of keep kicking, keep kicking, keep kicking, get to the point where you can just sense like there's no way that I should keep kicking. And then he keeps running the hoop, <laughs> and it kind of felt weird. So I kind of flip my hips and, and try to, to catch him, which obviously you're not supposed to do a tackle, but. He's also not supposed to be at 14 minutes deep as a quarterback, but, um, <laughs> and then at that point, you know, I'm facing the other direction. So I just felt he threw that field. We had a lot of completion and, you know, we're in kind of a hurry up offense at that point. So now I got to run however long that is, you know, 15 yards back plus the 57 yards we gain, which is again, not very friendly for offensive linemen. So I got to run, <laughs> you know, for the 70 yards downfield to get lined up to then go pass block again. So, um, that was a play I didn't, all the craziness of it until after the fact, you know, I didn't realize Pat was, you know, that deep, um, which, I mean, when you watch it, you can see him take his normal kind of five-step drop, and then he just feels the pressure and keeps going yeah. and knows exactly where to go, and then I didn't realize he basically flat foot through a ball 58 yards across his body, uh, which is the, the crazy part to me. How, what did he say about that play after the game when you were talking to him about it? I just said, "Hey, how about that nine-step drop on the the wasp?" And he just kind of laughed. You were giving him shit about being too deep on the game-changing play of the Super Bowl. You were an offensive lineman to your core, my friend. (laughs) Well, I wasn't really giving him crap. It was more just like that was pretty crazy that you took a nine-step drop on that one, and we still able to make the play. And then I kind of gave him uh, like, "Yeah, I also didn't realize you kind of threw it sixty yards across your body, flat-footed." And he just gave me that look that was like, "Yeah, I know I'm the only guy that can do that," and it was pretty badass. And uh, I, I kind of appreciated that. When you like, I want to talk to him about him just a little bit. When you kind of think about just what he's been for the last couple of years, and you and I have talked about him before, but does he kind of change the way you think about what's possible on a football field? Does it like recalibrate your understanding of how the game can work to a certain degree? It seems like it. You know, I don't get to see that stuff as it's happening, so yeah, uh, it's a little unfortunate that I can't like watch him do this thing and kind of watch it all unfold. You know, a lot of the things, uh, you know, after a good game, I'll check Twitter. After a bad game, I try to stay off. But after a good game, I'll check and I'll see kind of all the, the cool pad highlights that are floating out there. And then even when they say during film, I mean, we don't really watch 
didn't play. We don't watch like the quarterback stuff. We kind of just focus on the O line. So that makes sense. Um, you know, our O line coach has watched kind of the game with the rest of the group. So he every now and again would just be like, "Hey, did you guys see this throw?" And I'll show it from like the right angle, and we're like, "Oh my god, I didn't see that." And so that's kind of the fun part of it is just seeing all the crazy stuff. Like the next day when we're watching film, and our line coach is like, "Hey, check this one out." It's so funny that you like watch clips of it just offhand, which makes sense, but it's just, it's such a weird way to process it with, I think I'm, I'm so interested because like you said that, like he has that badass streak to him and he's also just got that, I don't know, it's the hair and it's the voice and it, it just seems like there's such a weird contrast of him being this like real, like badass motherfucker. But at the same time, he's got that like kind of, I don't know, not softness to him, but it's a strange combination. Like, have you ever been around somebody that just has that switch as a quarterback where they just have both of those sides that are so kind of diametrically opposed to them? No, and the, the weird thing is, you know, it's not even like a switch. They're kind of both there at the same time. And so, yeah. you know, he's always super competitive. He's always, you know, got that extreme confidence in himself. And obviously we've seen he can pretty much do anything he tries to do. Um, but then it's, the reason he's so well liked is, you know, he's still crazy humble and, um, you know, he doesn't do anything, you know, too showy. He's kind of, uh, you know, he props up his, his teammates whenever he gets a chance to, you know, he doesn't take any self credit. Um, you know, he's just like a total team guy that you wouldn't expect for, for a guy of his stature. And so, um, you have to see that combination. I mean, that's the encouraging thing looking, looking forward, you know, going into this year, people were questioning, oh, he's whatever, 23, he just won the MVP, you know, is he going to kind of rest on his laurels? And my whole thing was, no, I mean, he's so competitive and he's such a perfectionist that he's always going to keep pushing himself. And, you know, combined with just how good of a duty is, um, you know, the, the future is even more exciting now. So obviously, you know, he's the best football player in the world, but you were the best football player on the Chiefs during the playoffs. You can downplay it all you want. I'm I'm not going to let you. The run you went on during the postseason is one of the best runs offensive linemen's probably ever had during that three-game stretch. When you're playing like that and you're in that sort of groove, other guys I've talked to, they compare it to like being a shooter and getting hot or a hitter seeing the ball. Can you feel the difference in playing the position when you're settled into a groove like that? Yeah, there's like a confidence that goes along with it. And typically, you know, my first offensive line coach, it was George Warhoff. I mean, he used to say, you know, if you guys are doing your correct technique and everything's right, I mean, you're going to win 95% of the time. Like, yeah. it's a very small percentage of the time that you can do everything correctly and the guy will still beat you. You know, that will happen because it's the NFL. But you typically look at a line play, and obviously, you know, this, like, almost every time a guy loses, it's because he took a panic set because he was going against Von Miller and he was worried about his speed. So he, you know, flew open at the snap or, um, you know, he was trying to punch the crap out of a guy and, you know, punch out of his shoes. And then he wasn't a good body position for the, for the counter move. And so, um, you just get in this like confident state where you trust your set, you trust your body position, you trust your hands. Um, you know, the thing I admire most about Joe Thomas was that, you know, he always, always seemed like he kind of just knew what the guy was doing and his body just reacted to it. Yeah. And, you know, it seemed like the game was just so slow for him. And so when you do get into a groove like that, I mean, that's kind of the slowing of the game that people talk about. You know, maybe uh, it's only one-tenth of a second, but if you kind of see that move happening that one-tenth quicker, um, you know, your reaction and your counter to it um, is going to be the thing that uh, lets you be successful. So, um, you know, you definitely, you know, feel it when you're in those grooves. It's just uh, kind of a confidence thing more than anything. 
And I think in the Super Bowl, that was so important because you're playing against Armstead and Ford almost like every other play. And stylistically, they're so different. And your plans for them have to be so different that if you have that tenth of a second at the play where you can react to, this is the gap between these two guys, that's going to make all the difference. Yeah, I mean, like you said, I mean, Armstead's one of the strongest dudes. Be able to be 6'8 and whatever, 300 pounds, and, you know, that, that explosive, uh, pretty hard to deal with. And then D, I mean, his get-offs, I mean, really everything. I mean, he's the, the best, or one of the top three, if not the best, at, you know, getting off the ball and using that. And so, you know, I will credit, you know, my center, uh, Austin, who did a really good job with the silent count. You know, that was something, you know, going into a game on the road, if you don't trust the silent count, that's another thing where, you know, you're not trusting it. Maybe you're slightly late. You feel like the guy's got an edge on you. You start to lose trust in yourself. And, you know, your technique breaks down before the guy even beats you. And so, um, you know, we were kind of on awesome for those two weeks to make sure he was consistent. But, uh, man, he wasn't. I feel like I got a really good jump. And, you know, that's just another thing that, uh, kind of a small thing that can help tackle that. I noticed that. You were out of your snap. You were out of your stance before the ball was even snapped all the time, which is such a huge thing. So one, that's the, the limit of offensive line nerdery that we can do on this show by contract. So uh, one thing before you get out of here, just what was it like with Andy at the end of the game? I know you guys kind of shared a moment. I mean, just winning it for him, just his reaction to everything. What did he say to you? Just kind of walk me through that entire night with him. Yeah, I mean, that was kind of the big story that two weeks before is wanting to, you know, obviously you want to win it for yourself, but you want to win it for him just knowing you know, what that means for him, you know, his place in the league, uh, you know, playing for him, everybody loves him. And so I uh, just being able to go over and, and congratulate him and kind of see him in the moment, uh, you know, it was really cool. And um, at this point, I can't even remember what was said, but just, you know, congratulations, <laughs> so happy for you type of thing. And uh, I mean, he was, you know, as happy as I've seen him those, those two days after. And so, you know, I think that he would never admit, um, you know, how much it mean to him or kind of the weight off his shoulders. But, um, you know, I think you can see it and just knowing, uh, you know, he's not going to have that question hanging around. You know, it's something that, you know, I always thought was unfair. I mean, we talk about small sample size all the time. And, um, I mean, the playoffs are just, you try to get to the playoffs and then from there anything can happen. And you know, he's made a career at the end of the playoffs. And I think that's, you know, what a, a coach should really be touched on. I totally agree. I mean, you know this. It, it takes so many tiny little breaks to get there. One little thing goes wrong. And that's the difference. And it, this year it went right. And because you have him, you have the best player in the world, and you have some pretty other good guys like yourself. All right, bud. I really appreciate you doing this. Uh, it's always good to chat with you. Go enjoy your time off. Uh, go enjoy some time to cook and everything else, and uh, I'll talk to you later. All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening to the Ringer NFL show on the Ringer Podcast Network. We will be back weekly this offseason. Kevin will be back with us next week. We'll be doing some draft shows from the Combine. We'll be doing free agency stuff. But we are going to be in your ears this entire winter and spring. So thank you very much for listening, and we'll chat soon.